Well, if you recall last week, we saw that Jesus was sort of being put on trial by the Pharisees and religious leaders, not his actual trial, which comes later at the end of his ministry and will in fact lead him to the cross, but they've charged him with blasphemy because he made himself equal with God, not just by healing on the Sabbath, but by his claiming divine prerogative for himself because he said, the Father's working and I am working. And so they said uh, he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus began from this position of the defendant's chair, sort of making his case that he, in fact, is not guilty of blasphemy. And the the only two possible reasons that he would not be guilty of blasphemy were if he, in fact, were not claiming equality with God. And he said, oh, actually, you guys misunderstood. That's not what I meant. That's not what I was really doing. If he could demonstrate conclusively that he did not mean to claim equality with God, then the charges of blasphemy would fall apart. Or, if it could be concluded that he, in fact, could claim equality with God, and in fact is God, is divine in nature, then the charge of blasphemy, again, is false because he is simply stating the truth. Well, we saw last week that the uh, tactic that Jesus takes is not to backpedal It's not to go, no, 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 you you misunderstood. It's to drive the stake of his divine identity even further into the ground. And we saw he made at least three claims about himself. He claimed uh, that he had a unique relationship with the Father. He He does what he sees the Father doing. The Father shows him everything that he's doing. He doesn't speak on his own authority, but on the authority of the Father. He ties himself uniquely to the Father uh, such that there is a divinity of nature. He claimed that life and judgment were at his disposal. He has life in himself, and he gives it to whom he will. And he spoke of judgment coming in the last day, where there will be a resurrection. Every one of us is going to die at some point, and then we'll be raised. And we'll either be raised to life, or we'll be raised for judgment, based on how we respond to the message about who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. So verse 24 of chapter 5 said, Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And then finally he claimed about himself that he is worthy to be worshipped as God. And in fact he said, if you don't honor the Son, you don't honor the Father. So in order to even be a worshiper of the true God, you must also be a worshiper of Jesus. You have to recognize Jesus as the Son of God. And so he makes these very strong claims about himself. He's going to continue today, not just defending himself, but he's going to begin turning the tables and actually bringing some charges against his accusers. And so we'll see him call for himself four witnesses, if you will, to speak for him, that give testimony to his divine identity, and then he'll begin to turn the tables against the religious leaders who are charging him with blasphemy. So I'd like you to read along with me in John chapter 5, beginning in verse 31. I think if you're using the ESV Story Bible, it is page 738 is where we are located right now. But this is the fifth chapter of John beginning in verse 31. And we'll read to the end of the chapter, and then we'll back up 
and walk through this together. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And so Jesus calls four witnesses for himself and turns the tables and begins making some pretty strong charges against these religious leaders. So let's start walking through these verses and see what is the crux of Jesus' argument in defense of himself, if you will, and then what charges he brings against uh, the religious leaders. In verse 31, he says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. And at first blush, you might think, that's strange. Is Jesus saying that he's lying about himself? And that's not what he means. He doesn't mean that his words are false. He means that, because remember, we're This is kind of a legal setting where these charges are being brought, and so he's making a defense for himself. What he means is that legal testimony concerning himself would not be admissible in court unless it were confirmed by other witnesses. And in the Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 17.6, there's a requirement of a charge of a capital crime to be substantiated by two to three witnesses before it would be considered as a valid charge. And then Jewish tradition by this time had extended that same principle to insist that any person's testimony at all needed to be confirmed by additional witnesses in order to be admissible in court at all. So Jesus isn't saying what I say is false. What he's saying is if I only gave you my own word, it would not count, right? It would not be admissible in court unless it's confirmed by other witnesses. So he's essentially saying my own claims regarding my divine identity will not be received unless they are confirmed by other witnesses outside myself. And so he begins to list witnesses that he can call uh, to confirm his testimony about himself. So let's walk through these witnesses one at a time and see what they have to say. The first witness that he calls is John the Baptist. 
Now, in verse 32, he says, There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. And I think he's referring here to John the Baptist because that's who he's going to introduce by name in the very next verse. He says in verse 33, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Now, if you recall, if you are here as we began preaching through the Gospel of John, um, you'll remember that the Pharisees sent uh, temple leaders and religious leaders to interrogate John the Baptist, basically, on his ministry. They came to him asking him if he was the Christ, the Messiah, the one that had been promised from the Old Testament. And do you remember John's testimony when they said, are you the Christ? First of all, he simply denied, I am not the Christ. But then he went far enough to say when he saw Jesus coming up, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he said, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John the Baptist, in his own baptizing ministry, was simply serving the purpose of highlighting and spotlighting the person and ministry of Jesus. Jesus has these kind words to say about John in verse 34. He says, uh, excuse verse 35, he was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing for a while to rejoice in his light. See, John had for a while enjoyed a very popular and kind of prestigious ministry. In fact, he was recognized as the first prophet that God had sent to Jerusalem in something like 400 years since the close of the Old Testament. So when John comes onto the scene in this kind of authoritative way and speaking the words of God, it got people's attention. And he gathered a crowd and he was baptizing people. And so, in fact, he was probably more popular than Jesus at the beginning of his ministry uh, and enjoyed this, this sort of popularity in the early part of his ministry. But when it became clear that John's purpose was simply to direct people to Jesus, and Jesus started getting more popular, if you will, uh, than, than John the Baptist, the, the religious leaders sort of started uh, questioning John. They kind of, he kind of fell out of favor with them. Eventually, he will be imprisoned and executed uh, for his ministry. Nevertheless, Jesus calls on John the Baptist as a strong, compelling witness to the divine identity of Jesus. He says, you yourselves accepted and rejoiced in his ministry for a while. And his whole ministry was about me. He was pointing others to me and saying, go follow Jesus. And he confirmed, I bear witness that this is the Son of God. So John the Baptist provides the first witness in defense of Jesus' divine identity. He continues by calling a second witness in verse 36. He says, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So he calls the miraculous signs that he is performing as a witness to who he is, and specifically that he was sent from the Father. And when he says, I've got testimony that's even greater than that of John, he's kind of like going, I'm just getting warmed up, all right? You think John the Baptist is a good witness? Wait till you see what I've got in store. And so he calls as a witness the powerful works of miraculous mercy that he has been performing in Jerusalem and Galilee and throughout the region as a testimony to who he is. But specifically, not just who he is, but where he came from. He says, 
these signs bear witness that the Father has sent me. So remember what he said last week. He says that the works the Father has given me, we've already seen that he said he can only do what the Father shows him. He sees what God is doing, and he does the same thing. Where the Father is at work, that is what I'm doing. And he told us back in John chapter 4 that the, the mission that the Father had given him was like food to him. When the disciples brought him food after his encounter with the woman at the well, uh, they said, Master, eat. And he said, I, I have food that you do not know about. And they said, could somebody else have brought him lunch? That doesn't make sense. And then he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And so he's already told us that doing the will of God is the most important thing in his life. And now he is saying that these miraculous signs, these powerful acts, are the work that God has given me to do, and they show you that I'm from God. In other words, Jesus' miracles aren't just cool tricks. They're not just like a fireworks show where he hopes that someone is impressed. Ooh, wow, look at this amazing power. The purpose of Jesus' miracles is to validate his testimony about who he is and about where he came from. Look at the language that he used. They bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The miracles that I do demonstrate that I am from God. Can you think of someone else in the Gospel of John that we have seen who kind of got this? You remember the rabbi Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night in John chapter 3? He said to him, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus kind of got it. You must be from God because of what you're doing. And that is the very purpose of the signs. That's the purpose of these miracles that Jesus is performing. It's not just to impress people, and it's not merely to be merciful and kind to people, which it is. But ultimately, it is to point people to the reality that Jesus has come from God. He has come from God the Father. We've seen three of these signs already in the Gospel of John. In chapter 2, he turned water into wine at a wedding. In chapter 4, he healed the son of a royal official from like 20 miles away with five words, go, your son will live. And immediately the boy began to get well. Uh, and early in this chapter, we saw him heal a paralyzed man at Bethesda. He said, take up your bed and get up and walk. And the man was immediately healed. And so again, these signs, and we know that he's done more than just these things because back in uh, chapter 2, verse 23, John says that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. And that was after we'd only read about one of these, these things happening. So Jesus is doing more signs than John is recording for us. But here's the point of Jesus calling his miraculous signs as witnesses. The Jews should have been able to recognize who Jesus was based on his miracles. Jesus comes from God. Jesus has a unique relationship with the Father. Maybe, just maybe, we should listen to what he has to say. They should have been able to pick that up, and yet they didn't. And in fact, Jesus will speak specifically to their refusal to do that in just a few minutes. So he has called John the Baptist as a witness. John the Baptist saw and confirmed that I am the Son of God, and his ministry was all about pointing people toward me. And then he's called his miraculous 
signs of power. It says the point of these miracles is to show that I have come from God, just as Nicodemus recognized. He's going to call two more witnesses, but as he does so, he's going to begin turning the tables on the Pharisees. He's going to make a string of strong indictments against them, even as he continues to defend his own claims about himself. So take a look at verses 37 and 38. He's going to call God the Father himself as a a witness. Verse 37, the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Now, he could be referring there to Jesus' baptism, which the Gospel of John speaks of, but doesn't actually record for us, but it is recorded in the other Gospels. It could be that he's referring to the time when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, and at that time, a voice from heaven, from God the Father, audibly spoke and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so he could be saying that God the Father has audibly borne witness to anyone who was there at that baptism that I am his son, because he said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And John the Baptist referred to Jesus' baptism in the first chapter, Uh, but the details are recorded in the other gospels. Or perhaps Jesus understands his relationship with the Father to be so intimate and unique that his own presence in the world is tantamount to or the same thing as the presence of the Father. That wouldn't be hard to believe either based on what he's just told us from verses 19 through 30 about his unique and intimate connection with the Father. When you see the Father working, you see me working. What the Father does, I am doing. If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. He says things like that uh, even throughout this gospel. So the point is, again, they should have been able to recognize it. They should have seen in the person and work of Jesus, the presence of God the Father. So now the charges against the religious leaders start rolling in. So he's going to start turning the tables, going, but wait a minute, this is not just about who I am, this is about your hardness of heart. Look in verse 37, the the second part of verse 37, he says, his voice, that is the voice of the Father, his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Now remember, these are the leaders among Jewish religion. These are the pastors and scholars, if you will. These are the, 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 the elites. These are the top dogs in terms of the religious system. And his indictment to them could not be clearer. You don't know. That's a strong statement to make of people who are in a position of spiritual leadership and authority. You don't even know him. How do I know that you don't know God? He says, because you do not believe the one whom he has sent, me. Jesus says, you don't believe me, so you don't believe God. You don't know God the Father, or you would recognize me in the signs and in the testimony of John the Baptist and in the testimony of God the Father himself. You would recognize me if you knew God. If you receive Jesus, you receive the Father. If you honor Jesus, you honor the Father. If you place your faith in Jesus, your faith is in God. And so if you reject Jesus, if you dishonor Jesus, you dishonor God. You reject God. That is what Jesus is saying here. And he is charging these religious leaders with that very thing. You don't know who God is. You think you're experts. 
You think you've got your act together. You think you know what God's word is all about, but you don't even know him. Because if you did, you would recognize me. Hang on, it gets worse. He calls a fourth witness, not just for himself, but really against these religious leaders. In verse 39, he calls the scriptures. Look at verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Now, I want to pause here because in this statement, Jesus gives us a key, an essential aspect of how to understand the Old Testament. Because when he speaks of the scriptures to these Pharisees, remember, the New Testament wasn't written yet, right? The events that we read about in the New Testament have not even, are, are just being lived out. They haven't even been recorded yet. So when he says you search the scriptures, he means the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, as it were, which we call the Old Testament. So he is saying, you read the scriptures and you study them and you search them and you think you have eternal life there and they bear witness of me. And so we learn about Jesus, from Jesus, how to read the Old Testament. We don't just find stories of heroes of the faith, principles to help you trust God more, we find promises and pictures that all point forward to Jesus Christ, who himself is the fulfillment of everything written there. And so we embrace the Old Testament not just as the Jewish scriptures, but as Christian scripture because it all points forward to Jesus. And Jesus is himself the fulfillment of it. And in fact, it is a tragedy that the Jewish people stop short of accepting the New Testament and don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And so they only have the Old Testament as their Bible. And we say the Old Testament is ours too because truly its fulfillment is in Jesus Christ. And that is how we ought to read and understand the Old Testament. So he says, you want to witness to my identity? You want confirmation that I am the Son of God? I am the Messiah sent by the Father? Read the Old Testament. It's all about me. So the Jewish religious leaders, experts as they are in the Old Testament scriptures, are the first to recognize Jesus as Messiah and welcome him with worship, right? Wrong. Listen, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Literal translation of that could say you do not want to come to me. You are not willing to come to me. You search, you study, you analyze, you pick texts apart, you hunt down literary artistry and nuances of meaning, you track down every command and principle, and, and you order your life around them. You instruct others how to follow the same commands that you find in the scriptures. Your whole life is devoted to the word of God, but you've missed the entire point. What a devastating trap to fall into. To have the very word of God in our hands, to recognize it as essential and true and right and from God and to cherish it, to read it, to learn it, to organize Bible studies with others, to build our lives around fervent religious devotion to what we find there, only to let the real truth of it sail right past us. To completely miss the heart and center of God's revelation to us in the scriptures. To read God's word yet remain blind to the word of God, Jesus himself. 
I confess that this indictment falls perilously close to my own heart in certain seasons of my life. You know, I can remember a season of time when I was, uh, especially when I was in seminary uh, in, in Houston, uh, where I, I could dig deeply uh, into a passage of Scripture, write a multi-page essay on its proper interpretation, and never be confronted, really confronted with the reality of my own sin, the depth of God's grace, and the glory of Jesus. The goal of engaging with the Bible was so wrapped up in performing well in a class that, that God's Word became to me like an academic textbook where I could read it and study it and understand it and make a great argument about what this passage means, but I hadn't let it soak in. I hadn't let it really confront my heart. And that's the way that I approached the Bible for far too long in my, in my seminary studies, and I've had to repent of that. And at times, I still have to kind of fight that mentality because I like to know and understand and organize and see how things fit together. And we should do that. We want to understand what the scriptures say, but the point of it is to let Jesus, the word of God, have his way in our hearts. And so if we come to the scriptures and we spend time in them and we, we, we learn them and we study them and we share them with others and we never let our hearts rest under the authority of Jesus there, we've missed the point. May we become those who approach God's word, not as a proof text for our positions, but as the direct revelation of the living God to us. And in that holy encounter, may we find ourselves face to face with the living word himself, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so he tells them, you read the scriptures, but you don't find me there. You miss it. You miss the point. Well, Jesus is done calling new witnesses for himself. His defense, as it were, is complete. The defense rests, Your Honor. But he has one more devastating charge to level at the Pharisees. Read with me verses 41 through 44. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You hear the charge he's making? You care more about impressing people than you do about pleasing God. You're not interested in God's glory or his approval. You are after the applause of men. Why don't they receive Jesus? Why have they rejected him as the Messiah that their scriptures have been promising for ages? Because they're so wrapped up in themselves and how others perceive them that they can't give God any attention. They are looking for glory from one another. Could this be said of you? Are you so concerned about how others see you, what others think of you, that you can't bother with what God thinks of you? Are you trying so hard to be acceptable to the people around you that you won't stop to consider whether you're acceptable to God? That was the problem, you see, with, with the entire Jewish religious system of Jesus' day. They had so meticulously mined God's law for instructions for living and constructed such an elaborate system of rules and restrictions 
that every ounce of mental energy and spiritual strength was devoted to law-abiding or condemning those who were failing to carry such an unbearable burden. Because let's be straight, who can keep all of God's law? Who can keep every rule and restriction and regulation and command? Even if you boil it down to 10 of them in Exodus 20, anybody keeping all 10 commandments very well? I can't do it. Nobody can do it. It is an unbearable burden. And yet the whole system by this time, when Jesus steps into the scene, is so corrupted and so centered around rule following, law abiding, that they miss the whole point. Jesus steps into the middle of that broken system and says, enough. With his turning of water into wine, he said enough to the rites of purification that the people trusted in and pointed to the blood that he would shed on a cross for the cleansing of sin. With his clearing of the temple in Jerusalem, he said enough to the greed and control that had taken over the sacrificial system and pointed forward to his own death and resurrection as the new place where people could approach God. With his declaration to a rabbi named Nicodemus that people are so broken that they need a new birth in order to enter God's kingdom, he said enough to the empty teaching of the law that promised life and blessing to those who could keep all the rules and offered a new paradigm in its place, faith. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever keeps all the rules, no, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. To the Pharisees and religious leaders who charged him with blaspheming God for claiming equality with God for himself, he offered this promise. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. He is passed from death to life. Hallelujah. Good news. But unfortunately, they won't hear it. The last words Jesus utters in his indictment against them are in verses 45 to 47. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Moses is the hero of the Old Testament. He is the guy that the people of Israel identify with bar none. He was the great deliverer that led them out of slavery. He was the great lawgiver through whom the the covenant to the people of Israel uh, came. Moses is their guy. Moses is the author, by the way, of the first five books of the Old Testament called the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And he says... Moses, this guy that you set your hope in, that you wrap your identity up in, that you think we are on Moses' side. He says, Moses testifies against you because he spoke about me and you've rejected me. You have missed the point. Moses, if you believed Moses, you would know me. You would recognize me. If you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The last thing he says. How will you believe my words if you don't even believe Moses? Moses is your hero. And the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures that you've been trained in and that you've studied and searched and pulled apart and analyzed, 
you don't even believe them. You don't even believe what's there for you. How are you possibly going to believe what I say? Unless we get high and mighty and think, wow, those Jews, they sure missed the point. We can be just as guilty of this. We can be just as guilty of looking to the scriptures and speaking of spiritual things and thinking about God and talking about God and totally miss the heart of the gospel. Totally miss that the whole point of who Jesus is and why he came was to set us free from the notion that if we just measure up, if we just do enough good stuff, if we just keep the law well enough, that we'll be acceptable to God. Jesus says, no way can you be acceptable to God on your own. You're a sinner, and he's holy. So what Jesus does is bridge the gap. Jesus comes and fulfills the law, obeys the law perfectly in our place as a human being. Jesus comes and he goes to a cross to pay for our sins, to pay the penalty that we had stored up for ourselves of God's wrath against our sin. And he rose back to life to show that sin was defeated, that death had been removed, and its sting is gone forever. And he declares again, if you will hear my words and believe in him who sent me, you will have life. So let's not let this be our story. Let's not turn away from Jesus because our hearts are set on emptier promises and lesser joys. Let's receive him by faith, believing that he is the Son of God, and by believing, have life in his name. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we need your grace. We confess our desperate need. We confess that sometimes we miss the point. Sometimes we come to your word or we come to you in prayer or we try to do what's right and pleasing to you and yet we try to do it in our own strength. We try to do it apart from a true recognition of who Jesus is and who we can be because of what he's done for us. Or we study the scriptures and we come up with a list of rules to follow instead of seeing Jesus there and encountering the Son of God and all of his grace and truth and letting our hearts reside under his authority. Lord, forgive us and help us. Help us to see Jesus as we come to the scriptures. Help us to see Jesus in our conversations with one another as we try to encourage each other uh, to live a life that's pleasing to you. Help us not to come out of community and, and worship services and times together thinking, Oh, wow, I've got this long list of things to do. Help us to come away from those meetings and conversations amazed at the mercy that has been shown us in Christ and confident of our position as a child of God, not because we can fulfill the law, but because Jesus fulfilled it on our behalf. And not because we can do enough good things to pay for our sins, but because Jesus paid for our sins in our place on a cross. May we be those who recognize Jesus as the Son of God and place our hope and trust in him and find life in his name.